When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me today Dr. Sarah Rich to tell us all about her book titled Mushroom, just out in 2023 from Bloomsbury. This is part of the Object Lesson series that I personally find very cool. And as you can probably guess from the title, this book explores mushrooms in a ton of different ways, historically, in terms of eating them, in terms of where we find them. Philosophically, what does it mean for our language and our sense of humanity and our place in the world? Um, So Sarah packs rather a lot into this wonderfully concise, um, almost hand-sized book. Um, And so Sarah, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Miranda. It's so lovely to be here. Before, however, we dive into all things mushroom, uh, could you maybe start us off introducing yourself a bit and explaining how you came to write this book? Yeah, so it is kind of an interesting story. Um, So first of all, um, I'm an assistant professor of honors at Coastal Carolina University. Um, which is a lovely place to be in. I get to teach, um, you know, some of the best and brightest students at our at our institution, and they always ask such wonderful questions and um, get me thinking about things that I never thought about before. So um, that's probably a big part of how this book sort of got its its origin. That combined with I am also a huge fan of the Object Lessons series and and have been. Um, I'm kind of a thing theory enthusiast. And um, so I, when, when the pandemic first started um, and I ended up with two spring breaks in a row, which is interesting because it's exactly, that was uh, in 2020. So that was exactly three years ago, like to the day, because it's spring break again. So um, I ended up with an extra spring break and I thought, well, um, you know, I've always wanted to write an object lesson and they were still accepting proposals at the time. Uh, not for the Atlantic series um, of of short articles, but for the book series. And so I thought I would just pitch, you know, a a project idea on boat wreck. And that's really much more aligned with my expertise as a maritime archaeologist um, and, uh, you know, a a person who, you know, essentially studies shipwrecks for for a living. Um, So I w- and I was just finishing up a bigger book project with Amsterdam University Press, and there's also a new books uh, series podcast about that one. Um, and so I was kind of like looking for a new sort of, you know, thing to think about um, and, and to kind of build on some of the theories that I had started putting together for shipwreck ontography. And so that's where Boat Wreck came into play. Um, so I pitched the, um, the, the idea to the series editors, um, Chris Schauberg and Ian Bogost. And um, they really liked it. They liked the, uh, you know, they liked the concept. They liked um, my writing, but they thought that it was a little bit too close to what I normally write about. And they wanted me to try a different object. So I, I pitched a few more objects, um, uh, driftwood, eyeball, and uh, let's see, there's one other one I thought. Driftwood, eyeball, 
maybe the something else and then mushroom of course um and chris schauberg you know one of the series editors um is is a forager himself and is it you know he loves to go out um in his area in new orleans louisiana and hunt for morels and so this had a kind of personal appeal to him so he picked that one um put it to the to the advisory board and um got the green light so uh, so I put together a proper, like a full proposal. And I guess that it was at that point that it got the green light from the advisory board. Um, and then, yeah, here we are. So um, it was uh, it was really kind of an interesting process, you know, um, going through this. And I just felt like immediately so honored to like be in this object lessons club, you know, like little me, like if someone thinks my ideas are actually worth this amazing series, you know, being, you know, contributing to this amazing series. So, so yeah, that's a little bit of the background of the, of the book. Um, I mostly wrote it, um, I guess in, in 2021, um, and then, you know, going through the editing phase and all of that took a bit. And then, yeah, like you said, it, it just came out, um, like a few weeks ago in January. So it's pretty hot, yeah, it's off, hot the off the presses. Yeah. Very exciting <laughs> for us. Um, I also am a big fan of the Object Lesson series, so I can imagine what a thrill that was to um, pitch to them. I must say, I do hope someone does eyeball at some point. That would be quite cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it would too. <laughs> but mushrooms are also pretty cool, um, as demonstrated simply through reading the table of contents of the book, if one was to start there, um, because you organize it through a number, well, a number of different ways. Uh, there's kind of a bunch of things happening. So I was wondering if maybe before we get into the chapters themselves, um, could you tell us a bit about how you organized the book and kind of how you decided on the themes? Yeah, it, it's a, um, I don't know, it, it's a good question with probably a less than satisfying answer because um, initially I was just thinking about like, uh, you know, like all of the the disciplinary lenses that I could that I have at my disposal to be able to understand this this um, this object uh, as a, a mushroom, and so I thought about like like the the sort of um, religious studies sort of lens, you know, with mystery religions. My PhD is in ancient Near Eastern studies uh, from the University of Leuven in Belgium, and so um, you know, a, a lot of what I have studied in the past has to do with, um, ancient religions of the Middle East and, you know, their sort of extensions into, into the present day. So I knew I wanted to get into the, into the mysteries, um, a, a little bit. Um, but then I also started thinking about, about mushroom as a sort of metaphor. And I drew inspiration from, uh, Michael Martyr's object lesson dust, um, in, in that sense. And where, where he talks about the different aspects of dusting just as a concept, um, and how it can relay both the accumulation of, of dust, like a, a, like in a snowfall or something like that, but also dusting in, in terms of cleaning. Um, so I started thinking about, um, you know, about the sort of literary aspect of mushrooms and uh, how it functions in our language. But then I also wanted to think about like the ecology aspect, because a lot of what I do in my work is um, tree ring analysis. So um I do uh, dendrochronology, especially as it pertains to the relationships between forest uh, and shipbuilding, or unfortunately, in many cases, deforestation and shipbuilding. And so I also wanted to take, um, you know, to, to spend some time talking about mushrooms from an ecological perspective. So that's the the third part on mycology. That's where that one comes into play. And then I started thinking about, you know, like there's all this um, information now about the therapeutic aspects of mushrooms. And of course, a lot of this is drawing on 
you know, on knowledge that has, you know, accumulated over the course of thousands and thousands of years. And so I wanted to consider like the more anthropological aspect of, of medicine, um, as well as the physiological part of it. Um, so that sort of, you know, came about with part four and then part five, of course, because you can't talk about mushrooms without talking about magic mushrooms. Right. So, um, so the final chapter, um, is on magic. And then each of these, each of these sections, um, is composed of two, two smaller sections. And then they, each of the sections is also interspersed with, um, the name of a season. And like, uh, so, uh, that's devoted to one mushroom that happens to, um, appear in that particular season and, um, give some instructions on how to find that mushroom and then what to do with it when you do. So yeah, it's um it's a kind of unusual structure, and I guess as far as the structure itself is concerned, I was also um, kind of inspired from a different another um, object lessons book on ocean by Steve Mentz, where he makes this very deliberate um, kind of conscious choice about the structure of the volume, and um, uh, you know thinking about the dualities of ocean, and so for there for each point there's a sort of counterpoint. Um, so I, I really liked that that sort of deliberate aspect of, 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 of his structure and wanted to incorporate something similar, but that would be specific to my object, um, being mushroom. And, um, so, um, so yeah, that's, uh, there's more to say about that, but I think we'll get there maybe later on. Well, we're definitely going to get into a lot of the, um, themes that you mentioned. And I think, the, the interweaving almost of the different ways the reader is engaged um, was really fascinating kind of because it would be one thing to just go, OK, well, there's a chapter on this, a chapter on that. But the fact that there's the interludes and the, the different ways of thinking about it um, gave a whole extra layer to it. And in some sense, in some instances, you directly address the reader. Uh, so I was wondering kind of how do you want readers to engage with the book so this book became very personal very quickly, and I did not expect it to really take take on that um, that level of I don't know sort of like personal life history exposure, um, confessional kind of stuff. And so before we get into the the first part on mystery, there's a preamble. So the, all of these these sections are sort of bookended with a preamble and of course a postamble. And you know the idea is that we're foraging throughout. Uh, throughout this book. And so um, because I, you know, I refer to like these personal anecdotes frequently um, and my own history of foraging, um, not just in a literal sense, but maybe in a more figurative sense as well, um, it seemed kind of appropriate that like if I'm inviting the reader into like this level of intimacy with my life, then I should probably also sort of reciprocate, right? And so for every pronoun, a personal pronoun, you know, the first person pronoun, there is a second person pronoun too. And so um, you're right that like in in a couple of different places, um, I sort of address the reader um, more directly and and invite the reader to imagine certain things or to read certain sections out loud and to not skip the Latin parts and things like that. So I really do, like I want this book to be as interactive as it is intimate. Um, and, um, yeah, for the, for the reader to kind of walk away with a, with maybe a new sense of, of one's place in the ecosystem. With that lovely sort of framing, I suppose, and context understanding sort of what the book looks like, what your 
putting into it and bringing to it. Um, let's turn to mushrooms themselves, by themselves, maybe. Um, and there's kind of a, I mean, maybe it sounds like a silly question to start, but it's really interesting. I sort of saw it on the page and was like, hmm, okay, so what? And then kept reading and was like, oh, okay, hang on. There's a lot of what here. Um, and this is essentially the, the simple idea of how do we refer to mushrooms? It? They? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, this is a, a kind what, of tricky what, how, how can we think about this? Yeah. It's, it is a deceptively simple question. Um, and, you know, like I kept thinking about like those little maxims, you know, that you hear um, a lot, like in, in the in the guidebooks and just like these little rules of thumb, you know, that pa are passed down from one generation of forager to the next. And so, you know, these little um, little maxims like little and brown, leave them in the ground or, you know, when in doubt, throw it out. Or when in doubt, don't pluck it out. Things like that. But that 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 pronoun of it seems so seems so dismissive. Um, and so I don't like I I feel sort of hesitant to sort of use such a dismissive pronoun, or at least to write about it. Maybe in colloquial speech, you know, it's just so ingrained that we can't really you know it's much more difficult to get away from it. But at least um, when you're when you're writing and you have the you know the option of editing your work and and you know changing your your views like in midstream even um, it seemed like a good opportunity to kind of address like how um, you know how sort of you know like aware and alive mushrooms are by by trying to incorporate a different a different conception and so I. Um, stumbled across, I don't even remember how at this point, but at some point I stumbled across um, a, an article in Orion, in, uh, which is a, um, it's a, an English language magazine. It's a brilliant, it's all about, you know, sort of interactions of nature and culture. Um, beautiful writing, constantly, consistently represented in that book. And so one of the articles in Orion from a couple of years ago was written by Potawatomi botanist and poet Robin Wall Kimmerer. And this article that she wrote um, sort of appeared again later on in her ve now very famous collection of essays um, that are compiled in the book Braiding Sweetgrass, um, which I highly recommend. Um, and and it's, it's she is, you know, drawing from like, you know, her experience as a Native woman, but it's not just about like, you know, like Indigenous views on botany or Potawatomi specific views on botany, but also just about like what it is to like be a woman and experience, you know, the world and like plants and like her love of plants. And of course that extends into, into fungi, um, for, for this thinker as it has for many, many other thinkers as well. So, um, she offers in this, in this Orion essay, the, um, Potawatomi word to describe and a sort of like living being of an animate world. And that word is key, K-I. And so it makes for a, a kind of interesting um, comparison with some other um, concepts that are more in the Western tradition, including the Germanic word kin, um, which, uh, which is, you know, referring to sort of like familial relations, but it doesn't necessarily have to be confined to people that you are a blood relative to. And so that seems really promising. And then there's also, and again, kind of drawing from my background in ancient Near Eastern studies, um, a, a Sumerian um, uh, signifier, uh, which is also key, K-I, uh, which just means like it refers to 
it sort of modifies a noun and means that it's of the earth, of the land, of the place. In fact, it's usually translated land. Um, so this also seems kind of like, you know, really interesting and thinking about like, you know, humanity's first written language used that exact same pairing of letters, K and I, to signify something that's, you know, comparable in, um, in, in uh, uh, the Potawatomi language. So, um, so yeah, I tried to kind of like try this out, um, you know, in, in, at least in the, in the first chapter and like, you know, sort of um, use some wordplay to try to incorporate this um, this this pronoun key uh, into discussions of, of mushrooms. So, like you know, if you were to substitute key for it, then you, then all of a sudden the phrase becomes you know, when in doubt, don't pluck key out. Um, and so, anyway, that's you know, that's kind of like you know, something that I wanted to sort of experiment with. And, and again, I just think it's a beautiful concept to um, to you know to recognize things that we often understand as, as inanimate, um, as inert, as actually being very lively and being like a part of this bigger earth system that is in itself um, lively and, and animated. Speaking of how we understand things and um, how we understand lively, animated life things, I was really intrigued in um, some of one of the more historical aspects of the book when you look at how, um, I guess, medieval would be the correct time period. Um, scientists, I hesitate to use that term, but people who were trying to figure out what was happening in nature, um, how they were trying to think about the world. And of course, we know this uh, most frequently, I think, when we think of sort of Christian theology of the hierarchy of there's God, then there's Jesus, then there's these angels, and they're better than those angels and all that sort of thing. And the kind of very complicated diagrams that go all the way down into the multiple circles and rings of hell. Um, and this was quite clearly a big thing for them for a long time to categorize all the things in these ranking systems. Um, and yet you point out that mushrooms and fungi, despite definitely being things that they would have encountered, uh, don't tend to show up in these lists and rankings. Why not? Yeah, it, it is very interesting. Um, and I think this goes back to an Aristotelian understanding of, of the ordered world. And so even though like, you know, we see this sort of start to crystallize with medieval um, scientists and, and philosophers and, and theologians as well, they're really drawing on a, on a more ancient classical tradition even. So um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, part of the problem is that mushrooms were sort of lumped in with plants and not actually considered a separate branch of organisms until like the seventies, which is just crazy, you know, to think that like, you know, for all this time, you know, and even Aristotle himself said, you know, I'm pretty sure that that fungi are a, a sort of type of plant, but somebody should probably look into this a little bit further. And then no one bothered to for like literally thousands of years. It's so crazy. Um, but when we do see mushrooms start to appear as, as sort of separate ish from, uh, from other plants, they are, uh, ranked even lower, you know, in, in this hierarchy of um, of life forms than than plants themselves, and you, you know, you just have to sort of wonder why. And that question itself was a huge guiding, yeah, guiding force, you know, in in the writing of of this book, especially in the early chapters. But it's referenced later on in the book as well. Um, 
where, you know, it's like, why would fungi be placed like right above inanimate objects like tea, ke- tea kettles and, you know, skeleton keys and, and uh, cups and, and things like that. Um, it just, it, it is really kind of strange how they get sort of siphoned out. And then, and it seems like with so many things, once you start to separate and siphon one thing out from another, then it becomes far too easy to place it into some pre-existing concept of a hierarchical order. Mm. Mm. If Aristotle tells you to do something, surely, surely you would do it, right? (laughs) One would think. (laughs) (laughs) One would think. Um, Staying in the historical part of the book for a bit, um, what in what what do you think links as you've done in the book mushrooms with big historical things that we might not usually think mushrooms have any relation to such as the crusades or the renaissance yeah this is a a really big question um and of course like i I don't necessarily see any sort of like direct causal link between these (laughs) between these big historical events and um and mushrooms other than you know when we start to um yeah this is such a hard question to ask or it's a hard question to answer it's the kind of like the system of othering that the that the crusades sort of brought on if we see the the renaissance as a continuation of the crusades right and and that the crusades sort of like really started to draw very strict distinctions between communities that had been living together you know, more or less happily, you know, for hundreds of years and really started to kind of, again, kind of draw distinctions between these things. Once again, siphoning out one thing from another, in this case, religious practice. And um, so with with that kind of siphoning out, we see this um, in, in the visual art of the, um, of the Renaissance in particular, we see strange things start to happen, such as um, kind of loose affiliations between Jewry, <laughs> between Judaism, and uh, and 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 mushrooms and and witchery. So all of these things sort of kind of get wrapped up into into the same kind of demonizing concepts of of you know infidel religious practices and um, and and demonic practices uh, and and somehow mushrooms kind of get wrapped up in that and we see it kind of time and time again um, in the visual culture of of the the Renaissance and and even later where mushrooms are um, again kind of associated with um, with uh, other Abrahamic religions besides Christianity um, as well as with witchcraft. So obviously, I have to ask you about witchcraft. So thank you for giving me the perfect um, linking between the questions, Uh, because mushrooms are, of course, heavily linked with witchery, witchcraft, um, and sort of wrapped up in that, of course, is, you know, fears of female sexuality and things like that. Uh, So why exactly did, how did mushrooms come to have this association? Well, I I mean, I think that... (laughs) That first of all, it's a kind of chicken or egg sort of question, and, and to be frank with you, I, mm-hmm. I don't exactly know the origins of um, of how exactly um, these these associations came to be. I don't I almost like a you know metaphorical stand-in for the for the other, but we do know from like our you know sort of Romance languages and Germanic languages that 
that fairy circles are often referred to as as witch rings. Um, and and there seems to be something, and I think it's also like the phallic shape of mushrooms, of many mushrooms themselves, that sort of lend themselves to this idea of like, uh, you know, of, of, you know, women worshiping the devil, dancing around in circles, and then mushrooms, these, you know, these phallic shaped appearances sort of, you know, come up overnight in, in this, you know, seemingly, um, you know, diabolical <laughs> way. And so, you know, I... You know, but again, like I don't know what it, what actually caused. It's it's hard to kind of say what a causal link is here. But um, at any rate, um, there is there is a pretty clear association between um, between these things. I'm I'm just hesitant to say you know what what the causal relationship would be. No, of course, it's more sort of what how how do you think they relate to each other? Which I think you've kind of helpfully explained with those examples. The diabolicalness the fact that it looks like male sex organs <laughs> um <laughs> like i can see how those associations relate yeah and there are other there are some other interesting things too like there are several um several mushrooms like across eurasia that have this reputation for um for being aphrodisiacs and so again and and again some of them also like look very very phallic like very phallic um and, and so, you know, again, that you know, you have this kind of um, very clear relationship between this phallic-looking object and female sexuality, and which you know should be the same as you know just like healthy sex life in general, right? But for some reason, you know, women are are sort of um, left out of those pleasures in a lot of history. So, um, and and you know, the idea of of women's sexuality as being something dangerous is, is not exclusive to, you know, to European history at all. Um, but there does seem to be, again, another one of those little weird connections between the, um, you know, the, the danger of, of mushrooms and, and ingesting the wrong one or, a, you know, a dangerous lookalike and, uh, you know, again, and, and um, female sexuality. I also wonder if the relationship between mushrooms and femaleness doesn't have to do with the fact that we, um, have historically and prehistorically been charged with a lot of the foraging um, responsibilities uh, to our communities. Mm. Yep. All those things together make rather a lot of sense. So thank you for taking us through um, that thinking. Um, But I want to move from the past to potentially the future. Uh, Because one of the other things you talk about in the book is potentially ways in which mushrooms might be relevant to this current problem we're facing of the survival of the planet. Yeah, and and, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I have I have uh, no doubt at all in my mind that planet Earth will be just fine. (laughs) Like human activity is not gonna is not going to bring an apocalypse onto um, onto to um, the planet as a whole, but certainly is bringing something like an apocalypse into, um, you know, in, into ecosystems and, and biodiversity and, um, you know, the, the health of the planet, I think, is maybe more at stake than, um, than its survivability. But, um, but yeah, there's been a huge amount of information about this and a lot of, um, a lot of traction being gained by certain, um, I don't, certain people of, a, of, a, of an evangelical strain, such as uh, Paul Stamets and, and the like, um, who have been you know, doing a lot of research into the potentials of mushrooms to be able to break down um, a lot of our toxic waste, um, inclu- including things like uh, like cigarette butts. 
um, so they can, you know, like metabolize things that, you know, you know, seemingly should not be metabolized, um, but also things like nuclear waste. And of course, um, Anna Singh Lohenhaupt's famous book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, also discusses this too, like, you know, the, uh, the idea of, um, of uh, mushrooms being able to, to kind of clean up after um, human error. And so, yeah, this is a kind of hot topic right now. And I share some opinions in the book that probably are not compatible with opinions that a lot of other people have about this hot topic. Um, I don't know if you want me to elaborate on that. Yeah, why not? All right. So um, I have a real hesitance with this, this idea of outsourcing um, our, you know, the uh, the responsibility for for cleaning up our our own messes. So one of my students um, just brought to my attention that apparently um, trees are now being bioengineered to um, to absorb more carbon dioxide. And, you know, we're, we're, we have long been, you know, expecting bacteria and mushrooms, uh, well, fungi more generally, um, to do the same thing for us. And I think that that is, um, is really just irresponsible and um, runs the danger of sort of adding to our, our problems. Um, I also have a problem with this in terms of expecting... Yeah, there, there's a kind of like a, a little bit of a savior complex, I think, going on here as well, where um, there is something kind of kind of um, messianic where we, we expect we, we can sort of like live our lives, our day to day to day lives and um, keep doing exactly the same things that we are doing with the, the hope or, or, the, or even the faith, maybe that um, some sort of divine, divine, um, um, interlocutor will, will save us from ourselves. And I think I worry that, that, um, you know, people in the, in the sort of Paul Stamets, um, strain of, of thought, um, run into kind of a similar problem where they're saying, okay, well, we can just continue sort of doing the same things that we're doing more or less. Um, we just have to train mushrooms to clean up our mess. And so it sort of brings the divine down into the, into the earthly realm, which on, you know, at a sort of surface level would seem like maybe a, maybe a positive, maybe a good thing. Maybe we, you know, that is a, a way of taking responsibility. But it's the, it's the problem of like being able to have your cake and eat it too, you know, where we can just like carry on doing the exact same things that we have been doing, you know, like to prioritize human flourishing above everything else um, and just, you know, again, kind of like expect other organisms to do our dirty work for us. And, um, mm. yeah, it just, it seems, yeah, uh, lacking in responsibility, also just straight up rude. It's just rude. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's try to not be rude when we move our discussion <laughs> over to, um, obviously magic, because you mentioned it at the beginning, it's in the book, we have to talk about it. Um, you have some very interesting terms in the book that I'd love you to tell us about, um, specifically mycotheology and mushroom metaphysics. All right. So um, this is another kind of difficult question to answer, but um, I basically use these terms synonymously. So I think of mushroom metaphysics as sort of like a broad, maybe a slightly broader um, umbrella category and mycotheology sort of fits within that. 
Um, I, I think that, you know, as far as mushroom metaphysics is concerned, you may have noticed that there's an alliteration going on here with um, with all of the, <laughs> yes. the, uh, the sections of the book, um, starting with the letter M. Um, mushroom metaphysics is, um, is in that same vein. Um, but it's basically drawing from this idea of the entheogen, which is something that um, people have been writing about, like especially anthropologists and um, historians of religion have been writing about for decades. And it's this idea of like basically where magic mushrooms um, bring one closer to God. And so and, and, and theogen is anything that sort of brings about an experience with the divine. And so they're usually referring to mushrooms like psilocybin, um, but also uh, the uh, Amanita muscaria, and you know, in some cases also um, uh, what, what is the word I'm looking for? Like LSD and um, ergot. Ergot is what I was looking for. So any of these kind of substances, and even in, in some cases, um, people talk about uh, you know about um, alcoholic beverages as, as, as like you know being able to initiate this contact with the divine. So. Um, I, I want to start with this idea of entheogen and sort of expand it to not just the mind-altering fungi, not just the the fungi that we normally think about as being magic, but also like all of them, uh, and and thinking about like just the relationship that these organisms have with their ecosystem as being in many cases parasitic, in many cases mutualistic, um, you know, having like these very complex partnerships, and you know just um, thinking about, I guess, like moving or like relocating our, um, our, our ideas of the divine back to something more chthonic, something more, more earthbound. Um, so I guess I'll stop there and then I can let you have a, ask a follow-up question if you'd like, um, if I need to explain that better no, or I, like, I, I think that was that. a, I think that was a good explanation um, and makes sense to kind of broaden out this scope and is very much in keeping with, I think, what a lot of the book is trying to do to make us think about this seemingly ordinary thing in very different ways, um, kind of in particular ways and also linking them together. Uh, and to me, this very much links to how you end the book because it doesn't have a super traditional ending. I was very intrigued by the ending. So I was wondering if you could, maybe without giving too much away, um, tell us how you ended the book, why you did that, and how people have responded. All right. So, um, you know, like a, a lot of the book's sort of overall project, and I think this goes back to the previous question that you were asking as well about the relationship between mycotheology and mushroom metaphysics is, is to kind of disrupt this um, or even invert, you know, the, this um, the scala naturae or the, the hierarchy of, um, of organisms, the, you know, the great chain of being and so forth. And so I want to try to like flip that and place mushrooms sort of like on equal footing with, um, you know, with humans and all other, um, you know, earthly forms of existence here. And so the ending of the book in a way kind of goes back to the beginning. And so there's a sort of circularity and this is, there's a theme of circularity that also runs throughout the book as well. Um, and so the ending of the book um, tries to sort of, again, kind of emphasize this, this structure because I um, realized at some point that not only did this structure have like a sort of rhythm to it, 
Um, but th that rhythm also sort of resembled walking. And so if you remember, I mentioned at the very beginning of the book, um, there is a, a preamble. And there's a, a sort of a little play on words there about of like ambulation, right? Um, which is a um, what one has to do in order to forage in, in many, in uh, you know, most cases. And so um, I wanted to sort of point out to the uh, to the reader, you know, that there have been they've been sort of like walking, you know, step by step, two at a time, because we are bipedal, like through this sort of foraging venture and like through numerous seasons and in various cycles. And so I want the the object of the book to sort of represent its subject in, in as many ways as I, as I could. And so then it raised the question of like, well, okay, so you've got this sort of like rhythmic walking as well as like the circular um, seasonality. But then what about the sort of weirdness of mushrooms, like the sort of like the unpredictable aspect of mushrooms where, you know, like they, they appear for no reason. They seem to disappear for no reason. They often can't even be identified with any, we know, with scientific certainty. And so um, I decided to, I realized also that throughout this entire book, I had really hadn't made any references to Alice in Wonderland, which seemed like a really... Um, missed opportunity. <laughs> so, um, so I invited the reader to sort of play a game because I'm a big fan of anagrams. And so, um, the idea is, uh, you know, involves the, the reader. And I, and again, I don't want to tell too much, but, um, the reader has to actually go back through the book and search for little hidden, um, clues and then, um, put together, um, yeah, put those clues together in order to solve a puzzle. So it ends with a game. And how have people reacted to that? <laughs> I don't know. You're the first person I've talked to <laughs> who's like, actually asked me about it. Did um, the editors say anything or any well, eyebrows raised? <laughs> I think the, the editor liked it. I, Chris, um, Chris Schauber liked it. Um, but because the book is so new, I haven't really had a lot of contact with other readers. Mm. So um, even okay. my husband hasn't finished reading it yet. And my students are actually starting to read it next week because I'm teaching a class on object lessons where we pick out, you know, you know books from the series and, um, and then, you know, discuss them and analyze them and stuff. And so not even my students have had a chance to give me their feedback on this yet. So, okay, so um, then listeners to this interview, you guys can be right at the forefront of responses right. if you want. <laughs> I would um, love that. Have a go, read the book, decide what you think about the game. <laughs> I have to tell you that when I had this idea, I was like, oh my gosh, this is genius. <laughs> and so I don't know if anyone is going to actually agree with me or not. And, you know, periodically I thought, no, it's not genius. It's lame. It's, it's so silly. <laughs> but so, yeah, I'm curious to hear what you thought. Well, I think you'll get a lot of interesting feedback, um, especially teaching it. I always find that students give us sometimes too blunt, <laughs> but sometimes also really surprising feedback. So um, I'm sure you'll get a lot when you teach it, uh, which leads me nicely on to my final question, uh, which is quite simply, maybe slightly meanly, the book has just come out, but... Is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next? We could get a sneak preview of. Yeah. So, well, you're right about um, having to develop a thick skin um, in, in anticipation of my students' feedback for sure. Um, so, yeah, I do have. Uh, I, I mean, so I mentioned that I pitched um, this idea of boat wreck at the, you know, at, at the first, um, and I still do want to pursue this idea. Uh, so I, I still have that kind of on the back burner as well. And then um, I, but right now I, I'm really kind of immersed in this, um, this tree ring project um, that I just started up called the Low Country Dendrochronology Project. 
And we have um, a kind of issue here in in the northern part of, of coastal South Carolina, where the development, um, the real estate development is really placing in jeopardy a lot of our uh, of our wetlands and our ancient old growth forests. These are um, in particular longleaf pine forests that have been decimated since settler colonialism all across the southeast. Um, so we've only got about 3% of remaining forest cover of longleaf pine. And it is a fire-dependent ecosystem, which means that controlled burning has to has to happen periodically in order to maintain the ecosystem. And this is something that, you know, the ancestors of the uh, the tribal groups in this area now have been practicing again for generations. And so, you know, before it was it was outlawed. And so, uh, my project is basically trying to determine exactly how um, frequent those controlled burning um, intervals were. Uh, that, that were practiced in pre-colonial times. So I'm, um, I'm looking at, at uh, longleaf stumps and um, uh, that, have sur- that survived the turpentine industry and then also trying to match those up with uh, records from, from shipwrecks that I'm, that I'm sampling here in the area too. So it's quite an ambitious project, but one that has really urgent implications as you know they're trying to build a hospital across the street from a nature preserve um, that's one of the last few holdouts for longleaf pine ecosystems that have like, um, you know, rare birds and, and Venus flytraps and other carnivorous plants. And so um, if the hospital is built across the street, then, of course, they won't be able to practice controlled burning there anymore for obvious reasons of smoke inhalation. Um, and uh, so and the, the, that forest will um, that whole ecosystem will um, will again be be enormously threatened. So. Um, so yeah, that's the project that I'm working on right now, and unfortunately, I think Boat Wreck is going to have to is going to have to wait until um, I don't know a rainy month or something. But well, both of them sound like very fascinating projects. So thank you for sharing them with us. And while you are off working on them, of course, listeners can read the book we've mainly been discussing. Again, titled Mushroom, part of the Objects Lesson series from Bloomsbury. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda. <laughs>